0: Back in Matthew chapter 12, Um, this chapter, like I pointed out last week, of course, last week, about two-thirds of you weren't here, Uh, let's see, Larry was here, and were you guys here? You were here, that's right, you were back there in the booth for me, that's right, and I was here, and Tom was here, everybody else was playing hooky, so... (laughs) just not this one. So uh, you you missed out on my introduction. This chapter is really just full of encounters between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, and it deals a lot with his uh, preeminence, his primacy over the law. And, And Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And this chapter is really one of those places where we start to understand what he means by fulfilling the law, what he means uh, as the Lord of the Sabbath and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in, in the first section, uh, verses 1 through 8, which we looked at last week, um, the Pharisees were accusing the disciples because they were walking through a grain field and plucking kernels off of the grain and popped them into their mouth which in the Pharisees' estimation account, uh, amounted to working on the Sabbath. And that is not allowed. So they were accusing the, Pharise- uh, the Pharisees were accusing the disciples of working on the Sabbath, and Jesus responded by explaining, uh, ultimately, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was not just a set of rules to be followed, not just a day where you're not allowed to do certain things, but a day to provide for the rest that we need and an opportunity for us to trust God in his promises. And that's what we're going to look at uh, today as well. Now, we're going to be a little bit ambitious. If you notice the number of verses that I have listed up there on the on the screen, verses nine through twenty one, that that's that's like thirteen verses. That's a that's a stretch for me. I'll try to get it in before two o'clock. Um. But if you would, uh, right now, stand with me as I read uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come to your word, we ask for the Holy Spirit to help us to understand Uh, The principles contained within the application of how this word, written 2,000 years ago, fits our lives today. Uh, Father, help us to be good students. Help us to pay attention to what you have to say to us. We pray all this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So, just to recap again, the, uh, the passage last week, So as the the Pharisees are all indignant about Jesus' disciples plucking these grain kernels uh, on the Sabbath, because, you know, that was the thrust of their position was you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And these guys are harvesting food on the Sabbath. That's not allowed. You can't do that. And and Jesus' response was, well, haven't you heard or haven't you read how David went into the tabernacle and ate? the bread that had been offered that was only lawful for the priests to eat, and he doesn't stand condemned. And what about the work of the priests? When they go into the temple so the people can worship, the priest has to work, and they don't stand condemned. So basically, Jesus' response is here is that you've missed the entire point of the Sabbath. And once again, we come to this point here where Jesus goes to the synagogue. He, he goes into the synagogue, and it says their synagogue. So this is obviously one that is held by Pharisees and scribes. These are not stupid people. These are people who know what God's word says. Might not know what it means, but they know what it says. And so Jesus goes into their synagogue. He did this all the time. In fact, when he was up in Galilee, he would go to the synagogue and he would be recognized as a rabbi and he would teach. You remember where he walks in and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah? He reads a little itty-bitty passage and then he gives the shortest sermon in history. Today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And he rolls the scroll up and everybody, I mean, definitely beat the Methodist to the buffet that day. Okay, I mean, that's that's just like, that's, I can't compete with that. It goes to show he is the perfect, right? But here he goes to the synagogue, and an important note about the synagogue, just in case you weren't aware of this, even though our church buildings, our worship centers, our sanctuaries are built in the same kind of format that the synagogue was, we use them different than they did. For the Jew, the synagogue was not a place of worship. As a matter of fact, if you look at the word synagogue, it is a two-part Greek word. The first part, S-Y-N, the prefix, means together. Just like when you synchronize your watch with something else. You're bringing it together, right? Yes? Okay, so the first sin, that's together. And the second part, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I don't speak Greek, sin agog, so the agog part, means to learn. If you think about children's education, if Brenda were sitting here, she could nod her head because she's learned all of this sort of stuff. Early childhood development, early childhood education is called pedagogy. Same Greek word, and it's talking about children, okay? So learning together is what the synagogue was for. It was not a place of worship. It was a place where the people would come to learn what God's word said. The Jews only worshiped God at the temple. Now, that shows a difference in the mind of the Old Testament versus the New Testament believer. Because when I hear what the word of God says, and when I hear what the word of God means, what is my natural reaction? Worship. (laughs) Okay? Theirs was too. They just didn't think about it that way. So they didn't get up and they didn't sing songs and they didn't do all the things that we do. They went to hear God's word read and then interpreted for them. And because it was a place where people would go to hear God's word and to to be taught, it was a place of gathering. And any place where there's a bunch of people gathering, the poor and the lame and the sick would gather to beg because they didn't have a means of feeding themselves, right? It was also considered charitable. It's considered a good thing according to God's law to give to the poor, to give to the needy. If you look at the law uh, for the tithe, there are at least three different groups of people that the tithe was mentioned for. The tithe was for the, the priests and the Levites. So that they could minister to the people. The tithe was for the widow. And this was a, a widow who was beyond marryable age, beyond childbearing age, who had no children or family members to provide for her. So this was a widow who had no means of support. And for the orphans, right? The widows and orphans, people with no family. And then the third group, or the, yeah, the third group was the, the, the strangers, the resident foreigners, the aliens, the uh, immigrant workers, basically, who didn't own anything themselves, so all of the fruit of their labor went to their employers. So those were, this, this is the principle of taking care of those who have not. So where do the people go to get money so they can buy food? They go to the synagogue. It happens today in the United States. Most of the time, where do people come to when they're in need of food or money to pay an electric bill or money to pay the rent or or clothes? They go to the church, right? There's a principle there. We're supposed to be charitable. And so this man with a withered hand was probably there begging for money so that he could buy food. Why the hand was withered, whether it was the result of an injury or an illness, we don't know. And it doesn't matter. The Pharisees, by this time, had heard about Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew what he did. They knew that he healed people all the time. And so they were hoping to catch him breaking God's law. Because if he was doing work on the Sabbath... Then he was violating God's law, and they could talk people into abandoning him. See, look, he's a lawbreaker. Look at what he does on the Sabbath. So they ask him this question, and they were no doubt close enough to the man who had the withered hand that he could hear it too. Now there's a a couple of things going on with this question. Number one, you see Jesus, you see this guy with the withered hand, And you can just hear the Pharisees ask the question, so is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And how do you think that guy with the the disability felt? Okay. A what? I'm just a piece of, I'm a commodity now? I'm a bargaining chip? I'm a pawn in some kind of, he's been devalued. This shows the way the Pharisees view people. Now, the other thing, is um, there is no mention of healing a person on the Sabbath. In fact, there is no mention of healing people in the law. It's not that it didn't happen, but it's not in the law. There There is not an 11th commandment that says, Thou shalt not heal on the Sabbath, or you shall heal people if you have that gift. It's not there. There's nothing in the law about miraculous healing. I wonder why. Because it's miraculous, God does it, right? So they asked this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Even if Jesus wasn't who he was, anybody could have made up an answer at that point. Anybody could have made up an answer. Now, what about a doctor? Is it lawful for a doctor to practice medicine on the Sabbath? Because that's what they were thinking. Because that's labor. That's work. And that's why most of the doctors at that point in time were Gentiles. (laughs) They weren't bound by the law. If a Jew got sick, according to the law, who did they go see? They went and saw the priest. So there's no mention of this in Scripture as far as whether it's lawful or unlawful. So the basic premise of the scribes and the Pharisees is starting out on pretty shaky ground. Is what you're about to do legal? And then second, shows that they did not recognize who Jesus really was because they were asking the person who could actually authoritatively answer that question. They were asking the creator of the universe The guy who wrote the law, the guy who was the law, the guy who was God's word, is this legal? Anything that he said was the right answer. Because he said it. So it goes to show how out of touch they are with understanding what God's word means. But instead of giving them an answer... Jesus shows them, now now, I'll be perfectly honest with you, this is an act of mercy. It's hard for us to believe or hard for us to think about the way Jesus interacted with the Pharisees as being merciful. But really, when it comes down to it, he would have been perfectly justified in raining down fire from heaven on every one of them. But he didn't. So he answers in such a way that he's going to expose their faulty understanding of the Sabbath and the way they view people. He's going to answer both to help them to understand A, they've got the nature of God down wrong, and B, they've got the nature of people down wrong. So he asks the question, which of you men standing here asking me this question, Which one of you smart guys, if you own a sheep and the sheep falls into a hole in the ground on the Sabbath, which one of you is not going to take the time to climb down to the hole and to pull the sheep out? Or use a block and tackle or a lever or something, right? Who's not going to do that? You're just going to let the sheep lay there and die at the bottom of the hole? Now, it's not that the Pharisees were known as sheep lovers, that they were that fond of sheep. But if you own sheep, that means you're a shepherd, right? And if you're a shepherd, where does your livelihood come from? Sheep. Dead sheep don't grow wool. (laughs) Dead sheep don't make milk. Dead sheep do provide meat for a very short period of time. It's a finite amount. They're not worth as much. So if a Pharisee owned a sheep, you could bet they would take care of that sheep. And if it fell into a hole in the ground, they would go wherever to do whatever it took to save the sheep. That's Jesus' point. What if it's on the Sabbath? Is that legal? And in fact, it is. All of them would pull a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath if it was their sheep. So Jesus says, After that rhetorical question, because he knows he's not going to get an answer from them, Jesus says, how much more value is a man than a sheep? Now he's just hit point number two. This man that's standing here, who just heard you refer to him as an object is worth way more than a sheep that you would violate the Sabbath to save. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Duh! Right? Of course it is. How much more value is a man, formed from the dust of the earth by God himself, formed in the image and likeness of God? How much more value is he than a sheep? or a donkey or a cow that image of god has been debated by theologians forever i mean since since the word was written down what does it mean that we're made in the image of god does that mean that god looks like a person no jesus says god is spirit spirits lack one thing a body <laughs> they they no flesh okay so God doesn't have a body that looks like us. And if you look at the places where uh, anthropomorphic language that's where we describe things in human terms that we can understand if you look at those places in Scripture where God is described as having body parts, all right? He has a foot, He has a nose, He has A eye, and eye, single eye, right? He has a nose with nostrils, because when he gets mad, the nostrils flare. And he has wings. Those are the only body parts that God has described as having. So I'm pretty sure that the image of God does not mean a physical likeness. But in all of those ways that people have argued about what the image of God means, one of the main things that separate us from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we were made in God's image. Sheep were not. Birds were not. Fish were not. We were made in God's image. And so Jesus says, it is lawful to do good for a person on the Sabbath. If it's lawful to save a sheep, it's lawful to heal a person. It just stands to reason. Once again, he's showing the scribes, and the Pharisees that the law of the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing of rest and not a list of restrictions on what you can and cannot do. Why would God give us a day where he commands us to rest? It's to fulfill a need. You know what that need is? Rest. <laughs> Rest. Larry, what time do you wake up in the morning? 12.20 a.m. And what time do you get home from work? 5.30 p.m. Do the math. Okay? Y'all think I'm crazy for getting up at 4 so I can go to the gym before I go to work. All right? I get four more hours than he does. Why did God make a provision for us to rest? Because if he did... <laughs> nothing in Scripture is commanded if we would normally do it on our own. Think about that for a second. Nothing is commanded in Scripture if we would normally do it on our own. God does not have to command us to eat. Right? Now, he commanded Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree over there. But he doesn't have to tell us, make sure you eat at least once or twice a day. Because that's something we naturally do. He doesn't have to tell us to do things that are part of our nature. So when something is commanded like, oh, I don't know, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, you will do no work on the seventh day, why would he command that? Because if he didn't, we would work seven days a week. We would be in the thick of it seven days a week. You know, I 25 years, I have been associated with the United States Air Force. And I have had times where my duty hours were from 7.30 to 4.30, and I've had times where my duty hours were from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., different shifts, and, and all these different things. I have had all kinds of different work schedules. And I have learned just exactly how much body, uh, how much sleep, how much body my sleep needs. A couple hours more wouldn't be bad. <laughs> I have learned how much I can function on for what period of time. I know when I need to go to sleep. Do I go to sleep at that point in time? No, I normally go about a half hour later. Why? Because that's my nature. If God didn't command us to rest, we wouldn't. We would work until we're exhausted, and then we would drop over and we would wake up from that exhaustion, we would get up and we would do it again. And we would work ourselves into the ground because that's who we are. That is human nature. The Sabbath was a blessing of rest, a time God says specifically, sit down, shut up, and trust me to take care of you. That's what the Sabbath is. Trust me that you don't have to work seven days a week in order to be able to pay for the things that you need. I will provide. Trust me that the, the food in the garden will continue to grow even if you don't go outside and tend it. One day, 24 hours. Trust me. That's what the Sabbath is. Instead, what the Pharisees had done is they had turned it into a burden because they had so defined what work was. They had set up so many artificial spiritual guardrails for the people that the people were immobilized for fear that they would bump into one of those boundaries and stand condemned. Think about the kind of a mind that looks at a person who has a hand that has been destroyed by injury or illness and says, is it lawful for you to fix that? That's where the Pharisees were. Does that count as labor? Jesus says, you missed the point. It's lawful to do good On the Sabbath, it's lawful to do good for people because that's not labor. That's not striving. That's showing God's love to people. The Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into a day where people had to work harder at not working than at resting. I felt really bad. You know, as I'm reading about Jewish life and everything, I feel really bad for first century Jewish women taking care of the home because it was a patriarchal society and the woman stayed home and took care of the home and she had to cook all of the Sabbath day meals the day before. They didn't have Kenmore refrigerators. They didn't have microwaves. And even if they had, they wouldn't have been able to use them. Think about that for a minute. That's how badly things had gotten at the hands of the Pharisees. Notice how they respond as Jesus heals this man. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored. What did Jesus do? He spoke. Stretch out your hand. Okay, hey. It was restored just like the other hand. I now have two functional hands. How much labor did Jesus expend? None. Zero. He didn't even touch the guy. He said, "Take, stretch out your hand. That's it. And look at how they responded. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Because he just destroyed their entire system that kept them in control of the people. Their entire system of legalism was just destroyed. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew from there because they were seeking to destroy him, and it wasn't yet time. He withdrew, and a crowd followed him, because people followed Jesus everywhere. I mean, he just spoke to this guy, and the hand was restored. What's he going to do next, right? So the crowd follows him, and he heals the sick and the lame. Matthew says he healed all of them. In verse 15, but then he ordered them not to make him known. He ordered them, don't tell people who I am. Don't mention me to others. Don't spread the word about my message. Now, I will tell you, no matter how many times I read this, when I come across a passage like that, there is that it's kind of like a fingernail on a chalkboard, it just does not resonate with who Jesus is it's it 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 just eh why would he do this the one man who has the authority and the right to make his presence known tells everybody don't tell anybody who i am seems really weird considering the people of israel have been waiting for a very long time for their messiah to show up jesus says don't tell nobody i'm here but then matthew says he did this to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42. In that prophecy, behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll bring the word of God to his people. But notice what he doesn't do in verses 19 through 21. He does not quarrel. When the Pharisees asked the question, Why do your disciples violate the law by plucking grain on the Sabbath? Jesus didn't bow up and tell them, Your interpretation of the Sabbath is wrong. You're being idiots. Get out of here. That's not how he answered the question. When they asked, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He didn't say, That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Be gone with you, Satan. He didn't say that. I would have. because I'm a sinner. But Jesus didn't quarrel. He didn't fight. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not walking around shouting his message. He goes into the synagogue and he proclaims. He talks to the crowd and he teaches. But he does not stand on the rooftop and shout his identity, because that would have brought all glory and praise to him instead of God the Father. And Jesus said, it's my pleasure to do his will. Even though he was worthy of glory and honor and praise and adoration and everything else, it's not what he sought. It wasn't his mission. He doesn't seek fame or fortune. Matthew says he's gentle and kind, a bruised reed. I love that language that Isaiah uses there. Jesus is the creator of everything. He spoke the world into existence he has all kinds of power all the power but he's so gentle that a reed that is bent and bruised doesn't have to fear his foot he's not going to tear it out of the way he's not going to trample it underfoot now What do you think Isaiah is really talking about here? Is he really talking about a reed? No. He's talking about people. Broken people. Bent, bruised. People. People who hurt. Think about the woman caught in adultery. There is your example of a bruised reed. She was dragged into the street. Naked. Caught in the act of adultery. Side note, that takes two people. <laughs> where, where was he? There have been some that have said he was one of the people who dragged her out into the street. That it was a setup to trap Jesus. And how did Jesus respond to that woman who clearly violated the law? How did he respond to her? He didn't say, it's okay, it's not a big deal. He said, where are your accusers? They all ran away because of what you wrote in the dirt. <laughs> I'd love to know what he wrote in the dirt. That's, that's right there at the top of the list, of things that I'm going to ask him after a couple hundred thousand years in eternity, right? Because I'm going to be too busy for the first couple hundred thousand. <laughs> and probably the sin that they had committed. What did he say? I don't accuse you either. The one person, he laid down the rules. The person who's without sin cast the first stone. There was only one of those people in the crowd, and that was Jesus himself. And he said, I forgive you. Go and don't sin anymore. That's the bruised reed that he won't break. The smoldering wick. (laughs) Victims of abuse. Abuse no matter whose hand that abuse came from, they don't have to fear the love of Jesus. They don't have to fear His presence. Those who are meek, overly submissive, the dormouse in the corner, the person who's always constantly concerned that somebody is going to drop a hammer on them, they don't have to fear the words of Jesus. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting here. He's going to bring justice. He's going to bring victory. God wins. Sin and death are conquered fully and finally. We can trust Him. We can place our hope in Him. We can look at this, and verse 21, In His name the Gentiles will hope. Why is that good news for us? We're all Gentiles. (laughs) Pretty sure none of us here are Jewish. Just a guess. In Him we place our trust and our hope. And so, that brings us (laughs) that word, that prophecy, the gentle, the meek, the mild Jesus who will not abuse his followers, who will not cause them grief or despair, who will not beat them down, is the one we celebrate when we observe the Lord's Supper. So gentle that he laid his life down. So submissive to the Father's will, that even though he had the opportunity when he was before Pilate, The second time. (laughs) Are these charges against you true? Do you really? Are you really the king of the Jews? Even though he could have at that moment shown forth his glory. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? That glory could have broke through. Jesus could have stood up and said, yes, I am. And Pilate would have fallen down just like the, the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane did. Jesus said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus and Nazareth, and they all fell down. And by the way, that was about 5,000 troops. They all fell down because Jesus says, yeah, that's me. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, for us, he hung on the cross. And that's what we commemorate. That's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. So, as we get ready, I want to invite everybody to pray. And I've I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it because this is important. Paul admonished the church in Corinth, who were pretty much messing everything up, including their celebration of the Lord's Supper. He admonished them not to approach this in an unworthy fashion. Elsewhere, we are told in Scripture that we need to... Uh, if we have unforgiveness in our heart, if we have something holding us back, somebody we need to go apologize to or somebody that we need to go forgive, that we need to leave our gift at the altar and go do it. So as we're getting ready here, as the music plays, I want to invite you to take a couple of minutes of silent prayer. And if there is anything holding you back, if there is anything in your heart, any unconfessed sin, any uh, unforgiveness that you're harboring against somebody, any bitterness that you're holding on to, uh, anything at all that is hindering your relationship with Christ, ask God, number one, to show it to you. Number two, ask him to forgive you. The Apostle John says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive him. In fact, it's already done. The biggest problem we have is understanding that. So let's go ahead and pray right now.